Hello and welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. Today, we will discuss our thoughts on recent carve-out transactions in Europe. I am Costanza Pozzaralli, an associate in the firm's general practice group, focusing on M&A and capital markets. Joining us today are my fellow associates, Alexi Madek from our Paris office, Stefan Rauch from our Frankfurt office, and Matt Triggs from our London office. In the current challenging economic times, many companies will be evaluating whether they are deploying their assets in a way that maximizes value. And financial sponsors are open to more complex, nevertheless exciting opportunities. In these circumstances, carve-out transactions can be a particularly attractive option. In Q4 last year, Aurelius, the pan-European investment company, carried out its 2023 carve-out survey of corporate and advisory professionals. The survey found that 78% of respondents expect an increase in the volume of corporates divesting non-core European and UK businesses this year. Roughly 84% of respondents believe that a need to refocus on core operations will be a key driver of divestment activity, with 45% of respondents highlighting the need to reduce debt burdens and 43% the need to reorientate a business from a weak market position. Matt, as an associate in our London office, you have experience in carve-out transactions in what kind of circumstances have you recently seen them come up? I've seen carve-outs in a number of contexts. Usually, a carve-out will come up either in connection with a spin-off transaction, where a carve-out is carried out prior to a listing, or in the context of an M&A transaction. And as you recognize in your introduction, within these broad categories, there are many motivations for why companies or funds might want or need to carry out a carve-out. For instance, a strategic company might spin off or sell a non-core business to fund the development of the core business. Or, if the carve-out business is highly regulated, its carve-out may ease its parents' regulatory burdens. Or a financial sponsor could buy a company with the intention of subsequently breaking it up to realize value where the sum of the parts exceed that of the whole, so-called value crystallization. In some jurisdictions, Although notably not the UK or Germany, a target could also sign up to a carve-out as part of a poison pill takeover defence. And do regulatory reasons drive carve-outs too? Yes, definitely. There is a recent trend for antitrust authorities to require structural remedies like divestments rather than relying on behavioural remedies. For example, in 2021, I worked on a deal where the European Commission required Estadol Exotica to divest some of its retail stores in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Italy in order to approve its acquisition of Grand Vision. That process required the carve-out of the retail stores into new companies that were then sold to two different buyers. And with the rise of the importance of foreign direct investment regimes throughout Europe and globally, carve-outs have been used upfront to remove transactions from the scope of FDI review. You have some first-hand experience in these two, Alexi. What were the objectives of the carve-out and sale of new Suez to private equity funds in the context of the acquisition of Suez by its main competitor, Veolia? The carve-out of the new Suez was one-of-a-kind transaction involving the separation and the sale of very interconnected business sales in the field of water treatment and recycling across more than 80 jurisdictions and the transfer of 35,000 employees and 7 billion worth of turnover. 
This carbide was initially contemplated by Suez as a poison pill in the context of Veolia hostile takeover and was eventually also imposed as a remedy by the EU and other antitrust authorities on Veolia. I also note that the acquisition of new Suez by infrastructure investment fund illustrates what Matt just described about the capacity of financial sponsors to participate in complex carve-out transactions, where they consider the potential for value creation is higher. Thanks, Matt and Alexi. Before we go into specific considerations, Stefan, would you like to say a few words about carve-outs generally? Very happy to. One of the first issues that will need to be considered in either a spin-off or an M&A context is exactly how the in-scope business will be contributed to the carve-out. Tax will often be a key factor. But other considerations also apply. In many mainland European jurisdictions, there are statutory processes that can be used to transfer assets from one company to another without the need to enter into separate asset transfer agreements, such as statutory contributions in kind or demergers. That said, separate transfer of assets might also be an attractive structuring option in certain specific cases. For example, a recently passed law in Germany based on the European Company Law Package for the first time regulates inter alia cross-border spin-offs and provides a clear legal framework that closely follows the established procedure for cross-border mergers. It can be expected that a standardized legal framework, including several simplifications, will make cross-border spin-offs significantly more attractive and will, in general, further increase the number of spin-offs. Furthermore, under the new law, extended liability in case of spin-offs is limited to the net assets allotted via the spin-off. This applies both to national and cross-border spin-offs and might ease concerns typically arising due to the concept generally applying to the liabilities of parent that have been incurred in the five years prior to the spin-off. That's good news from Germany. Another key issue, particularly if a statutory process can't be used for the entire carve-out, is the need to obtain third-party consents. Carve-outs usually involve some businesses or assets that under existing agreements can't be transferred without the consent of third parties or are subject to change of control clauses. Depending on how debt is to be allocated, it may also be necessary to launch a consent solicitation involving the company's bondholders. In complex carve-outs, the volume of consents, as well as the number of third parties and jurisdictions involved, might prove to be very substantial. Great point. Our experience has shown both that the process of obtaining these consents should ideally start as early as possible in the course of the transactions, and that there is value in implementing a dedicated team and work stream to coordinate this process. From a transaction document standpoint, it is also important to determine which party will bear the risk of any third-party consent not being identified at the time of signing or being challenged after closing especially where a consent was initially granted subject to conditions to be fulfilled after closing. The relationship between the retained business and the carved out business going forward will also be a key issue. In either a spin-off or an M&A context, a transitional services agreement usually facilitates the provision of services from the retained business to the carved out business, and sometimes vice versa, for a period of time until internal functions are built up or third-party providers identified. It is also not uncommon for the two businesses to enter into mutual supply agreements. For instance, in the spin-off of Ritesco and Continental, Ritesco and Continental entered into several framework, transitional services, purchasing corporation, and R&D collaboration agreements. Likewise, intellectual property may need to be licensed on a transitional basis. 
Investors in a spun-off business will expect to know that the business can operate effectively from day one. And so details of these agreements are typically disclosed in the prospectus. Whereas in an M&A deal, the pressure to put these transitional agreements in place usually comes from the buyer. Employment-related considerations may also speak in favor of one or more structuring alternatives. For example, will the requirements for employee participation be met at the level of SPINCO or the carve-out business following a spin-off or carve-out? And what about the financial aspects to take into account? Yes, financial aspects are of course important in any carve-out. The impact of the carve-out on the retained group's financing arrangement should be considered at an early stage. The company carrying out the carve-out will want to assess the level of debt the retained business will carry going forward, as well as any implications for its credit rating. It will also need to assess the impact of the carve-out on its financial covenants and whether it needs consents from its lenders to dispose of the carved-out business. In addition, financial statements for these assets or business lines being carved out will need to be prepared. In a spin-off context, the financial information required will depend on the rules of the jurisdiction in which the spin-off business will be listed, but will likely include audited historical financial information and, potentially, performer financial information. The parties have more flexibility in an M&A context. However, in both contexts, the accounts will form the basis of purchase price discussions, and the parties will need to consider whether they are going to use a locked box or completion accounts pricing structure although a lockbox structure is more difficult on a carve-out deal. In addition, if the buyer of the carved-out business is a public company, financial statements of the acquired business and potentially performers may also be required depending on applicable law. In either case, accountants will need to be engaged at an early stage. The length of time taken to prepare financial statements will usually depend on the assets to be carved out. If only shares are being disposed of, preparing the accounts is likely to be quicker because the relevant companies will already have individual accounts. But if other assets or liabilities are being disposed of, things are trickier because the revenues, et cetera, attributable to those assets or the extent of the liabilities will need to be determined. Lastly, intercompany payables and receivables will typically be unbound at or prior to closing. This process can be quite complicated, particularly if balances need to be netted off or assigned between entities. As well as these considerations, carve-outs in the spin-off and listing context pose a number of threshold questions. Alexei, what would you say are some of the most important considerations a company should make when planning to spin off a business or a subsidiary? A key issue is always identifying the stock exchange on which the spin-off entity will be listed. Often, this will be the same exchange on which the parent is listed. This has a number of advantages, including that shareholders will be familiar with the regulatory framework that will apply to the span of business. It will also minimize the risk of flowback from existing shareholders who receive shares in the span of business. Could you tell us a bit more about flowback risks? Sure. Flowback risks stem from certain shareholders in the parent deciding to divest, or in the case of index fund, for example, being required to divest the shares they receive in Spinco immediately upon the completion of the spin-off. This is likely to be a particular issue where SPINCO is listed or tax resident in a different jurisdiction from the parent. Such flowback may put the share price of the SPINCO under significant immediate pressure. The parent may therefore manage flowback risk by holding investor roadshows so as to stimulate investor demand for shares in SPINCO, 
which can then be matched with the shelters of the parents that wish or are required to divest their shares in Spinco. But the parent should assess potential listing venues with an open mind. A number of considerations will be relevant, including the depth of analyst coverage in the relevant business sector and the valuation that can be achieved. Also relevant will be the exchange rules on, for instance, capital raisings, shareholders' approval for related parties or significant transaction, and corporate governance codes and practices. Is the SPINCO sector of activity relevant? It can be. If the parent is spinning off a high-technology division, for example, it may well be worth exploring a listing in the United States, given the depth of analyst coverage and high valuations that can be achieved. To give a recent example, SoftBank has proposed to list ARM in the US rather than in Japan, where SoftBank is listed, or in the UK, where ARM was listed before SoftBank acquired it in 2016. Another example is Vivendi. Vivendi is listed in France, but decided in 2021 to list its subsidiary Universal Music Group on Euronext Amsterdam in order notably to take into consideration the constraints of its US and Chinese cornerstone investors. And similar considerations, including tax considerations, may also apply when choosing the jurisdiction of incorporation of the spun-off entity. Along with the choice of stock exchange and jurisdiction of incorporation, what else needs to be decided? The structure of the transfer of the shares in SPINCO to the shareholders of parent is also important. Commonly, this is done via a dividend demerger, whereby parent distributes SPINCO shares to its shareholders pro rata. In some jurisdictions, like France and the UK, the parent will need to have sufficient distributable reserves to pay the dividend. If the parent has insufficient reserves, this may be able to be overcome by reorganizing parent share capital prior to the distribution or by using a different transaction structure. In France, for example, the availability of distributable reserve is often an issue because the impact on parent distributable reserve is computed based on the fair market value of the SPINCO shares, which may be significantly higher than their netbook value. So in France, where the parent does not have sufficient distributable reserve, businesses can instead be separated via partial demerger, in French, scission partielle, rather than as a distribution. In this case, the spun of business line or the SPINCO shares may be contributed to a separate newly incorporated company, and the shares in this new core are then immediately distributed to the parent shareholders. This may enable, subject to certain conditions being met, the parent company to proceed to the distribution of the spun of business at net book value, as opposed to its fair market value. This partial demerger structure may also improve the tax treatment of the spin-off. It's the reason why spin-offs are usually structured this way in Germany. As you can see, the structuring work for spin-off can be very technical indeed, especially when many jurisdictions are involved. Carve-outs in the context of M&A transactions present a number of other issues. Our European offices have recent experience acting for both buyers and sellers, including on the SLR Luxottica deal Matt mentioned earlier, as well as Wotlow's acquisition of Eurotherm from Schneider Electric. Matt, based on your experience working on these deals, what would you say are the principal items on which one should focus when planning or implementing a carve-out in the M&A context? One point that immediately comes to mind is that in an M&A deal, the parties are free to decide when exactly the carve-out is implemented. In a spin-off context, you know the spin-off needs to complete before or on the same day of the IPO. 
But in an M&A deal, the spin-off could take place either before the transaction signs or after signing as a condition to closing. There are pros and cons to both approaches. From the seller's point of view, having the carve-out done by signing means that the steps needed to implement it are less of a negotiation item and more of a diligence item for the buyer. The seller will need to show the buyer that it has done the carve-out properly and provide some warranty and or wrong pockets coverage to show the carve-out business contains all of the assets needed to run it as carried on prior to the carve-out. Conversely, if the carve-out remains to be implemented after signing, then the buyer may want more fulsome contractual protections. These include negotiating a closing condition for the completion of the carve-out, which usually references a detailed structure memo or steps plan. Often the SPA will contain conduct provisions governing how the seller should seek the buyer's consent to deviate from the agreed steps plan. The need for staggered closings can be a second source of complexity. Indeed, in complex carve-out transactions, there's a significant possibility that all carved-out assets or businesses will not be ready to be transferred at or prior to closing. And it's therefore likely that some business agreements or assets will be temporarily left behind. In such cases, the parties will need to determine a threshold in terms of turnover, EBITDA, key assets, or a mix of these that will enable the transaction to close even if all the in-scope assets and liabilities are not ready to be transferred. The assets or business not transferred at the first closing would be transferred at one or more additional closings. In this respect, it's important for the parties to agree on conduct rules to protect these delayed assets, which may even involve the appointment of a monitoring trustee. In the past, we have also seen economic transfer arrangements applied to such delayed assets or businesses, whereby the economics, that is the net positive or negative cash flow of the relevant business, are transferred to the buyer before the legal ownership of the relevant assets or business is transferred. Yes, this tool was used, for instance, in the Veolia Suez transaction Alexi referenced earlier. These economic transfer agreements are complex to implement and require significant legal, tax, and antitrust analysis. Also, the allocation of the purchase price between the various assets and businesses may prove difficult in carve-out transactions because the seller and buyer may have opposing objectives, including tax objectives. Disagreements as to price allocation may also arise due to the need for the parties to be able to reduce the purchase price in case any such assets are definitively prevented from being transferred to the buyer, for example, if part of the deal is blocked by the antitrust authorities. And that takes us to tax. Earlier, Stefan correctly pointed out that tax is often a very important factor in planning a carve-out. Alexi, what are the most important tax aspects to consider when planning and implementing a carve-out transaction? Carve-outs may entail significant adverse tax consequences where transfer of assets or branches are involved. This is because such transfer of assets and branches do not necessarily benefit from a favorable corporate tax or stamp duty regimes as compared to traditional share deal transaction, where a participation exemption regime is usually available. The key consideration is often to determine whether a specific merger or demerger tax regime apply to the contemplated carve-out transaction. For instance, we are often able to structure spin-offs as tax-free transaction, depending on the structure and jurisdiction involved. In order for carve-outs to be eligible for such favorable tax regime, the main condition, at least within the EU, is generally 
that the transaction must involve a transfer of a complete and autonomous branch of business. That is, all the assets, liabilities, and employees needed to operate the business must be transferred. This may prove difficult where the separated business activities are interconnected. As a result, it is advisable to define the detailed transaction parameter only after considering all tax structuring aspects. The tax structure memorandum describing all the carve-out steps in all jurisdictions is generally a key document. It should be prepared as early as possible in the transaction process and is used as a roadmap for the implementation of the transaction. As Matt noted earlier, where the carve-out is carried out between signing and closing, the tax structure memo is usually appended to the share and asset purchase agreement and form the basis of the party's obligation as to how the pre-closing reorganization should be completed. Finally, in my experience, it is important to make sure that tax aspects are taken into consideration as soon as possible when designing the global timeline for the transaction, especially where tax ruling may be required, which is usually the case in complex carve-out transaction or spin-offs. Thank you, Alexi, and the rest of our presenters for your insights. We look forward to continuing to help our clients execute these interesting, complex, and most of all, exciting transactions in the future. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.salcrom.com. Mm -hmm.